This is the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, Episode 22. We are talking to artist Chris Bond. Hello and welcome to the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, a podcast for people curious about art and the lives of artists. In this episode, Senior Curator Danny Lacey talks to Chris Bond about his works featured in the MPRG exhibition Obsession, Devil in the Detail. Bond's new series of four small watercolours for the Obsession exhibition continue his chimerical alter ego of Martin Meeks, a Boston-based artist possessing species dysphoria who identifies himself as an ocelot. Find out more about how Chris Bond works in ways that are unlikely. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Thank you. I want to first ask you if you were creative growing up. I was more of a mimic when I grew up, so I came into drawing through copying, which was you know, kind of, I suppose, unusual in some respects for a child. I mean, kids often develop through making cartoons or developing narrative, like imaginative narratives, but my focus was always about trying to get things to look like things that I liked. That was primary focus, so I um, began by copying pencil drawings, often of landscapes, and then it kind of branched off into copying favourite cartoon characters, and then eventually copying old master paintings. And from that, I kind of dipped into photorealism, so copying photographs, and that's how the practice developed through mimicry. Mm. And you studied fine art at RMIT in the 1990s. What was this experience like and how did it influence or guide the sort of beginnings of your practice? And what sort of work were you making at art school? I was making some pretty terrible work. (laughs) As I'm sure quite a lot of people do. I had a very, very um, late onset angst-ridden period Mm -hmm. and it kind of blossomed during first and second year at RMIT. But it was a good space for that. The teaching there was reasonably hands-off. I think I had expected to learn how to draw and paint a little bit more than I'd... I don't know, I mean, given that RMIT was, you know, originally designated as a working man's technical college, I did perhaps expect more of that, but instead I got more assistance from the contextual side. So, you know, thinking about how your practice fits in to a contemporary context. Art history, obviously, was big. But, I mean, I suppose one of the main benefits was the cohort of students that I went through. So I went through with people like Juan Ford, Tony Lloyd, a lot of painters, Craig Easton, Darren Wardle, and they're artists that have continued on since those days and all have fairly developed practices. So that was probably the major benefit, being in that context, being inspired and motivated to make work. But, you know, I think even if I'd been in a really, really bad art school, I probably still would have done what I wanted to do because there's something, I guess, pressing for me in terms of what I need to get from my practice that sits somewhere outside of expectation, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. Mm. What did you do after art school finished? Did you get your own studio and continue to practice? Well, I was still living at home with my parents at that stage and for a while after that. And I kind of just dipped out of the whole scene for probably two to three years. Spent a lot of time at home. I went actually back to copying old master paintings because I felt like I hadn't really learned how to paint at RMIT. I'm not sure how beneficial it was. It was a kind of a weird disembodied experience. Also did a lot of um, work in galleries in exhibition installation during that period. So that was kind of my job. But yeah, eventually it got to a point where I felt so socially isolated that I needed to kind of reconnect. So I joined a studio complex called Grey Area Art Studios, which was run partly by uh, the artist Michael Grave. 
in the very late 90s, early 2000s period. And I was there for a couple of years with artists like Lynn Smith. And that was quite a formative time for me, developing probably a slightly more sophisticated practice that was a little bit more connected to contemporary concerns rather than necessarily being about my particular obsessions. Mm. And then, I guess, following that, you would have become a studio artist at Gertrude Contemporary? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yep, 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 that's what happened. Probably, in, like, in retrospect, I was really fortunate to get a studio there. Now it's, I think, even harder. Mm. Well, I mean, back in the days when it was located in uh, Gertrude Street, the studio spaces were massive. Mm. And there studio would be, were you in? I was in a weird one above the stairwell. It was oh, the yeah. second stairwell. Not the yep. one that goes down the gallery, but the one yep. that goes directly out to the street. Yep. Carpeted which was odd. I hate carpet. I can't stand it. And it was an L shape. And what I did was I bracketed off sort of the back half of the L with plastic. And that was my cutting room because I made a lot of plinths and display boxes for my work, which was increasingly becoming about mimicking a museum or historical setting. And, you know, there'd be a couple of artists that we were in all the time. People like Nick Mangan, he was there at that time. And Nick's, you know, he's got an, an amazing work ethic very dedicated to his practice and there were probably about I'd say three or four of us within you know the group of about I guess there would have been about 15 studio artists at that time that were there all the time and yeah I loved it it was a great period you know you get curators coming through to look at work and you develop relationships with studio artists there and be challenged as well great time Mm. in terms of your actual work I'd love to hear a little bit about the process that you use and obviously that might vary from project to project but just thinking about coming up from the initial idea to actually physically painting or making the work and also what do you find the most challenging about making work? Mm. I kind of struggled with this area over the years not from you know lack of imagination but a kind of position of where to begin so to overcome that issue I've developed these processes that I force myself to work with and sometimes they can be quite debilitating because they're the kinds of things that once you've started there's no turning back. So some of the works that are in the Obsession show feature processes that fairly convoluted but often what I do is I begin with a narrative so I'll invent a character, a setting for that character to operate in and then often I'll act as that character and what comes out of that process of acting might be some kind of material production or it might just be photo documentation. It might be writing that's been made in the first person in character. Or I've also done a lot of automatic drawing and writing sessions as well in in the guise of different characters just to kind of get away from habitual response. So the kinds of things that you would ordinarily do as part of a practice can become, after a while, well, they can stagnate and I get bored very easily. So I'm constantly looking for ways of trying to rethink what I'm doing. And for me, that requires getting slightly out of my headspace. So um, getting into these characters is a way of denying that kind of learnt response and finding new ways of doing things. And the paintings often emerge out of that process. Usually what I'll do is I'll work with the documentation or the writing or the drawings that I make in character and then transform that text and imagery into fictional magazines or text-based pieces, photographs. Yeah, a range of media, but often returning to painting. I always return to the painted form as a kind of way of, uh, maybe as a way of stopping myself from going any further because mm. they need to end. Mm. 
And a lot of your work is really meticulously detailed. I imagine the viewer initially gets quite seduced by that sort of technical dexterity of your work and that surface level. Mm. Obviously, beyond this, what are some of the broader conceptual ideas that you think your work talks about? Yeah, I often find that people will ask, how long did the work take to make? How do you do it? And all that kind of stuff. And I find that kind of thing interesting in itself, but it does become sometimes all that people want to see. But, I mean, more broadly... I'm interested in bringing into the visual arts aspects from other disciplines that haven't really been activated. So thinking about things like acting methodology, things from performance practices, but not for the sake of performance, but for the sake of generating new form. That's always been key for me. So I will use a social or historical context to enable that kind of thing to happen, but the work is never about... It's never a comment like a socio-political comment or anything. It's just it's as a means to kind of get me to go somewhere else. Where? I don't often know. And that's part of the appeal for me is that I have no agenda. None. None? None at all. <laughs> no, none. There's no. There's absolutely no agenda. Yeah. I mean, I make the work for myself, firstly, and then if other people get something from it, that's great. And really, that is it. I'd love to um, hear more about your material exhibition from 2016 and the approach you took to constructing a number of fictional characters and the resulting works that you made from those. And we're showing a couple of those in the Obsession exhibition. Yeah, sure. Um, so I thought for that show I developed a fictional magazine called Material and it was a kind of like a broadsheet style publication. There were a couple of these that floated around in the late 90s and early 2000s, and most of them have become extinct in Melbourne. And this magazine was an artist profile magazine. So I deliberately kind of staged the thing to be able to develop a number of new characters and then develop biographies for each of these characters and then act as them, document the process of acting in character and also developing small quotes on their behalf. And then... The actual show consisted of a painted reproduction of the magazine itself with torn out sections. So in the Obsession show, there are two torn out remnants from that magazine, one featuring Martin Meeks, who's a character who's continued to grow, and another featuring Arlo Alston, who is a performance artist who works with fluoro light and the breath of the dead, collecting it and expelling it and inhaling it. <laughs> so these are characters that kind of, they're absurd extremes of my own personality. They're probably things that I would like to do but are unlikely to do in person. But when in character, I'm free of the strictures of worrying about what people will think allows you to kind of move into these areas and experience new ways of doing things. In terms of actually embodying those fictional characters and then working through their practices mm. did you ever encounter any injuries from their practices <laughs> <laughs> i've experienced a lot of cold yeah so i mean a lot of the work one of my major characters is a norwegian performance artist called kraken and he's a nocturnal creature exists outside and he's quite visceral in the way he works with found material with soil trees nature so that's created a few issues, but they're temporary kind of slides into character. So, you know, like an actor or, or even like someone in ritual possession, you're um, voluntarily entering a dissociated hypnotic state temporarily. And it's for the purpose of getting into character and then there'll be 
you know, at the end of the process, when it needs to end, you get out and back to your normal self. I mean, I think the greatest impact has been on my wife, who was at first quite shocked, I think, by some of the stuff that would happen. And then she began to find it amusing. And I think that helped a little bit. And, you know, I mean, I, I really enjoy the process of getting into character and performing acts that are sometimes uncomfortable. I mean, I've crawled into garbage bins. I've been stalked. You know, I've allowed all of these things to happen in character that I personally wouldn't put up with in my everyday life, but characters allow me to do these things. Mm. And one of the artists you introduced during the material exhibition, Martin Meeks, returns in some new works that you've just recently produced for the Devil in the Detail exhibition. Can you talk a little bit more about your relationship to Martin and these new works you've created? Yeah, sure. Uh, recently I've been thinking about more about the idea of a collaboration between myself as an artist and the character that I embody. And so thinking about things more in a sense of dialogue, I suppose, began with a character called Wes Thorne, who I created a couple of years ago, an elderly man from San Francisco. And we passed work between each other and modified the work as we went along. With Martin, it's a little bit different, but Martin's an American, again, from Boston. And he believes that he was actually born animal, not human. He's a, what's called a Therian. He believes he's an ocelot rather than a human and that he's been born into the wrong body. Uh, so he spends a lot of his time acting out as this wild cat and documenting his, uh, these activities with tripwire photography. And so what I decided to do was set up a little bit of distance between myself and Martin. So there was a conversation between Danny Lacey and Martin that I was kind of deliberately sort of kept myself out of, developed a, an email address for Martin to correspond with Danny. And also Martin was fairly standoffish in terms of his relationship to me. So he provided me with some photographs of his nocturnal activities and I decided to make some very small green um, night vision watercolours from these photographs. Martin claims not to understand my motivation for doing so and I honestly don't quite understand it either. Sometimes I feel like it's a question of gaining some balance between the character and myself. So if the character does something, I feel like I need to do something in return to establish an equilibrium. And it becomes a kind of a, a strangely disembodied dialogue where the material that the character makes becomes a kind of hypnotic suggestion for me. So it, um, the act of actually being in character is kind of a self-fulfilling process. And you look at the material made in character and think, this is actually, this is real. This actually happened. I was recently rereading some of the material that Martin sent to Danny and I was reading and I'm thinking, I didn't actually write this. It feels like, it does not feel like my voice at all. And that's kind of what I'm aiming for, those kind of slight movements away from the self that suggest the possibility of working in ways that are unlikely. In 2017, you were the winner of the Ballet Lab McMahon Contemporary Art Award. What were the outcomes of this project? Yeah, that was an interesting one. I um, was asked to make a proposal for their space in South Melbourne and I've decided to create, as I often do, a fictional construct that a character could inhabit. And the character in this instance was a female performance artist from the 1970s who had worked in an upstairs room there in their space. It was a really an old building that goes way back 
so she worked in a space inside the building. The building was called Temperance Hall and it was a space for recovering alcoholics back in the day. But in her time, it was semi-abandoned. And within that space, she apparently came up with some ideas for some gestures or very, very small performances that she documented in an old ledger book that her dad had provided her with. And after her death, this book was discovered. And what I decided to do was recreate the performances that she described in the book, down to the details that she had suggested, the materials that needed to be constructed inside the space. And then I documented myself in those processes. So um, there was a, a reproduction of a page from a book next to a physical reconstruction of the materials that she had suggested we should be in the space, plus a photograph of me actually performing with those materials in the way that she suggested. And that there were, I think, seven of these kind of little sites throughout the building. Sort of a, a very strange reconstruction of something that never actually happened. Mm. To take over that physical space as well. It's quite a unique project. Yeah, I mean, often... I mean, my work is, I suppose, spatially dependent, but it doesn't... I mean, I work within institutional spaces and I'll create you know, fictional exhibitions that rely on people coming in and believing that what they're seeing is a truth. But usually I don't disturb the architecture of these buildings. Usually I bring things in and they're kind of placed. But in this case, I felt like there needed to be some kind of physical addition or removal from the actual building for the thing to be physically realised and to manifest itself in the way that I intended. Finally, what advice would you give to artists as starting out? Yikes. I mean, you just have to... This sounds very obvious, but you have to just want to do things. If you have motivation, that is all you need. One of the problems is funding, obviously. If your work doesn't have a commercial aspect or if the work isn't fundable through arts bodies, you're going to need to seek other employment, and it's difficult. But it's something most artists in Australia experience. The key is to stick to what you're doing. I got some interesting advice from Danny Moynihan, actually, when I was back at RMIT. He was one of the lecturers there. Uh, he's a, a well-known Australian printmaker. And he said, where possible, avoid fads. There'll be painting will come into fashion. It'll go out of fashion. If you want to continue painting, you keep painting. You do what you want to do, despite the context in which it's made. And that's probably good advice that could be passed on. Well, thanks so much for being part of the Obsession exhibition, Chris. And please pass my thanks on to Martin for his involvement as well. My pleasure. I'll do so. Thanks for listening to episode 22 of our conversation series. Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery is the region's major cultural facility and is supported by Mornington Peninsula Shire and other partners. Visit mprg.mornpen.vic.gov.au to find out about our latest exhibitions and events. Our podcast program is supported by the Gordon Darling Foundation. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode.